Hello, everyone. This is the Guidehouse Transportation Insights Podcast for uh, January 26th, 2022. I am joined today. I'm Sam Abul Samad, by the way. Uh, and I'm joined today by my colleagues, uh, Saji Ebbanata, uh, Joe Janata, and Christian Albertson to talk about some of the top stories in the areas that we cover uh, in the course of our research at Guidehouse Insights uh, for, for the transportation team. Um, Christian, why don't we start off with you uh, and uh, what, what have you got going on this week? Sounds good. Um, so one of the biggest stories in the aviation industry right now is the 5G rollout for uh, cell phones and how those will, those, that 5G uh, will affect aircraft around, especially around airports. Um, the thing about it is, is it, when we really look into it and really dig into it, there's not a lot of worry that should be happening. Uh, first of all, around the world, um, we'll use France as a, as a, for instance, they're already using this. 5G is rolled out. It's rolled out closer to airports. They've done a few things to their towers just to make sure that the 5G does not interfere with the radio altimeters. And that is the issue, is that these altimeters. So the C-band that they operate 5G under is, or is close to, so somewhat close to, what the radio altimeters use. Now the problem is there's about a 200 megahertz uh, kind of a safety area in there. The 5G is not allowed to operate in that 200 megahertz. And the radio altimeters pick up after those 200 out, um, megahertz to operate completely separate on, on completely separate, uh, different bands. Now, FAA, as of uh, 18 hours ago, so uh, we'll say this is uh, January 25th at 1.02 p.m., they went through and, and released a statement saying that over, right around 90% of the U.S. commercial fleet has been cleared to operate with no changes to these 5G towers. So they'll turn them on with a regular, uh, the regular power. They're not going to turn them down. They're not going to do anything. Our aircraft, their altimeters are fine. So there shouldn't be any worry about these. The last 10% of these aircraft that they're trying to go through and certify usually are running off of either a different type of radio altimeter or an older radio altimeter that may have an opportunity for some bleed over. I don't see it possible for them to turn up these ta the, the power on these uh, 5G towers enough to create a 200 megahertz bleed over because if they do there's <laughs> there's going to be serious problems and other other things as well besides just the the uh the radio altimeters um th this is an ongoing thing they're looking at at those last 10 percent they're hoping to have the last 10 percent of these aircraft certified in the next week or so but there's very few aircraft now that are, are being told okay you can't land because of it now What's really funny is last week I read there were some cert there were certain um, airlines, uh, non-U.S. airlines that were saying, "Well, we're not going to fly into the U.S. if you turn on those radio towers," but they'll fly into France that uses 
the same radio towers. So we're not exactly sure what's going on there. That's the same kind of, of problem they would have in France. They would have over here. They don't have problems in France. So I don't understand why they wouldn't fly over here. Um, this is going to be an ongoing. We'll probably talk about this next week or next time as well, because this is something that, you know, is going to have to be looked at and kept track of to make sure everything's fine. But as of right now, I do not see any problems with these aircraft and their altimeters and working properly. So just for, for those of us that are um, less familiar with the aviation space, um, how, how does a radio altimeter work? If, just give us a quick overview of that. And what, what frequency are they normally running at? I know the C-band that they've sold off for um, 5G spectrum here in the U.S. is in the 3.7 to 4 gigahertz range. Um, what, what frequency range are the altimeters using and, and generally how do they work? It's they're they're basically working on that range from it's like a four point two five and above. Uh, I think it okay. goes up to almost a um, can't remember their their high range, but it starts at that four point two four point two five. Yeah, four point two to four point four megahertz, or forty two hundred to forty four hundred megahertz is what they're saying here. But so it's. But what they do is is they basically it's it's a radio altimeter. It sends out a, a a radio signal, and it's almost like radar. It bounces off the ground, bounces off the towers, comes back, and it you, it uses those to figure out how far away they are from the ground. Basically, a time of flight type of thing. Yeah. How long so, it takes to reflect. Yeah. So basically, you're looking at okay, if if your C band ends at forty two or four thousand megahertz. And then you, you don't have anything start until 4,200 megahertz. That's that 200 megahertz bleed over system I'm talking about or bleed, bleed over area. And it, you've really got to turn, <laughs> turn up something very high, get a lot of hot, a lot of power going through those towers to get that 200 megahertz. It's not going to happen. Um, but basically they use it, um, Let's see. Best way to describe it, uh, everybody's is going off of it with the 4.2 to 4.4 gigahertz, and yeah, your your 5G tops out at five at or at four gigahertz. So I don't understand how the problems work. I've talked to my friend over at um, Honeywell. I've asked him about it. He said the same thing. There's, there's not enough power that you could put out from those towers to interfere with most of these instruments. Because um, th this, this isn't the first time that we've had a, a similar concern to this. Um, you know, last time was about a decade ago. I think there was a company called uh, Lightspeed that wanted to do uh, provide wireless internet services, um, but the problem there was they I think were actually. Uh, they wanted to use the same frequency that's used for GPS for global positioning, right. um, and and because the the GPS signals are so low power um, compared to most other things, it that would have completely overwhelmed it. So they they ended up actually FCC ended up revoking Lightspeed's license. I think if if I recall correctly, is that right? If if I remember correctly, yes. And and what they do is is. It, it's the same thing. If you're going to use the same frequencies, yes, there can be very, you know, there can be issues there. Um, it's like you're using your cell phone on 
a on an airplane. The biggest reason they say that you're not supposed to, which I don't quite agree with anyway, but um, is because of those low power GPS signals coming in. And if supposedly if you get too many people using your cell phone on an aircraft, you could interfere with those GPS some signals coming in. That's the only issue with that. Um, the same thing here, but you're not operating in those same in the same bandwidth. Light speed when they were were operating on the same bandwidth, yes, you could get interference. You could I could easily see that outside of the bandwidth, no. So um, there are uh, quite a few companies out there that are providing the internet to aircraft right now, and they have to be certified. And then this is one of those things where you can't just walk up and say, okay, I'm going to provide internet to aircraft. Okay, I'm done. You have to go through the FAA, the FCC, everybody to make sure that whatever bandwidth you are providing does not interfere with any other um, system on the aircraft. Okay. So they've had, you know, they've got 4G in aircraft right now. Okay. It's a, a, a miniature satellite dish is what it looks like up inside the very top of the tail of the aircraft is what it, what most of them look like. You, you have some other types of, of antenna as well that you can put on the aircraft, but that's the most... Um, common. And, and what they do is they have to rebuild the, the fairing on the top of the tail to make sure that the, the, the bandwidth that's coming through will actually come through this, this fairing, will get to the, the satellite dish that's inside, no problem, and will not interfere with anything on board the aircraft. So, this is they've been working on this with the 5G rolling this out for years and over 2 years ago the FCC the FAA had the plan to roll this out and now the airlines are coming back saying wait well wait a minute we want to make sure it's safe and things got postponed and everything but 90% of the aircraft have been certified by the FAA that nothing's going to happen with this so, like I said, it's something we need to keep an eye on, make sure everything goes properly. That's that, that's good to hear. You know, we definitely don't want planes uh, falling out of the sky because they, they think they're at a different altitude than they actually are. Well, the, the hardest part would be the landing, to be yeah. honest with you. They'd come in and they would think they're at... Yeah, when you're uh, at 35,000 feet, it doesn't really matter that much. But Correct. And, and the, the the 5G, that's what, why they are around the airports, that they're not then turn them on right away is because um, if it comes in and the aircraft thinks it's at 100 feet when it's actually at 1,000 feet, there's a problem. But at the same time, if it thinks it's at 100 feet when it's at 10 feet, there's a problem. Right. So that's the issue with the whole thing and, and the, and the radio altimeter on this. Um, but let's see, uh, just FCC, uh, charged by Congress regulated wireless carriers transmission. They authorized C band operation pursuant to a detailed 258 page regulatory decision. So the FCC has gone through this and, and looked at it and made sure these things won't interfere. Well, that's good to hear. 
Um, so ho- hopefully, uh, th- things will be <laughs> at least in, in terms of the the technical side of uh, uh, things for uh, aircraft. Uh, th- things should hopefully be back to normal within the next couple of weeks as they finish certifying the rest of these altimeters and, and aircraft. Um, and then, uh, you know, then then we just have to worry about you know actually getting people to fly again for because other sure. reasons. Yeah. Other yeah. Reasons. <laughs> Yeah, but on this side, the technical side of flying, I think we're still safe. All right, sounds good. Uh, Joe, Saji, any uh, additional questions or comments on that one? Uh, Yeah, Christian, quick question. Um, So do you know if outside of France, have there been any other presidents set um, in any other nations? Yeah, there's actually – I saw a list of them the other day. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, But, yeah, there's – I got it. Quite a few of them. I know, uh, I think South Korea was one of them. Um, Let me see if I can find my, let's see. Yeah, I got, I have a a list of um, 70 different countries using 5G at the moment. So it's, it, like I said, it's one of those things where if it'll work in those seven or 70 different countries, South Korea, Norway, uh, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait, you know, and it just goes, why wouldn't it work here? Yeah. 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 I, I, I just found uh, another uh, article. So far, 20, you know, the, the, the 70 countries that are doing 5G, they're not all using C-band. I think 23 have been identified as, as uh, allocating C-band spectrum for 5G because they're, 5G is running at a whole bunch of different frequencies yeah. from 600 megahertz all the way up to 28 gigahertz um, for the uh, the multi uh, the um, millimeter wave uh, 5G that it gives you crazy fast speeds as long as you're within about 10 feet of the tower. <laughs> yeah, <I'm, laughs> I think 10 feet you're giving it a little bit too much distance, maybe about eight and a half to nine. <laughs> okay. But yeah, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. It's so if you're if you, like you just said there, if they're operating at 2.8 gigahertz, radio altimeters are at 4.2 to 4.4. Yeah. So you've got you know so mo- most of the five G is no problem. Right. Right. So now a lot of those like in France, I know they have turned the towers down just for a safety sake, but it's not necessary to do that. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on then, um, Joe. Uh, why don't you share uh, a story with us? But uh, what you've been fo- what you've found this week? Sure. Uh, so something I've been following in the vehicle charging space is uh, GM's fuel cell development. Um, so, like much of the auto industry, they've kind of opted out, opted away from uh, using fuel cells in personal vehicles. Um, a space they have been working on is power generators specifically working with the U.S. Army on uh, mobile power generators. Um, so they developed the Hydrotech and Power Generator um, in partnership with the U.S. Army. It was designed to be a quiet, easily mobile, and efficient way to power temporary camps. And from that, they've spun out an EV charging solution. So this charging solution is aimed at filling um kind of a gap in the current charging infrastructure um, in places that are only trafficked um, a short period of time throughout the calendar year, such as beach towns or ski towns. 
um, music festival destinations. Um, so the idea is to set up these mobile power generators, um, either to supplement existing um, permanent infrastructure or to, you know, be the only charging um, option in the area. Um, one place that there's huge potential for this is in national parks, you know, where families are going on long road trips and there's not a guarantee of when they can plug in their car next. Um, so to set these up in places where um, there might be that need, they're hoping to start rolling these out um, starting this summer. Um, and by 2026, I read, they hope to have um, over 500 stations deployed throughout the country and due to their mobile nature, um, they can move from, you know, beach town in Florida during spring break, then up to, um, you know, a new England beach town for the summer. Um, there's a range of output options from, uh, electric output options from 60 to 600 kilowatts. Um, I read, uh, the goal for the EV charging station solution is, uh, 150 kilowatts. Um, and it has an estimated charge time of 20 minutes um, with four vehicles plugged in at a time. There's definitely some potential for um, a backup there in a busy town when everyone want, needs to charge up their car at the same time, you know, at the end of a holiday weekend um, with that 20 minute wait time. Um, the fuel cells can charge up to 100 vehicles um, before needing to be refilled, um, which can also be an issue. But I've read a couple different solutions um, where they could just get a bigger hydrogen tank, essentially, um, and kind of streamline that process so there isn't that potential backup. Um, and I think the biggest potential here is um, erasing hesitancy around EV um, ownership for a family that's interested in going, that goes on a beach trip, um, and they need that range and that guarantee of having a uh, charging solution, whether it be at a national park, um, or a beach town they're visiting. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting solution, you know, especially as we start to get a lot more, um, electric SUVs, uh, off-road type vehicles, uh, coming to the market, uh, you know, and also, you know, for dealing with emergency situations, like for example, what we saw last year when they had the freeze in Texas, um, when, uh, the grid, uh, fell down. If you if you had mobile charging solutions or mobile power generation solutions like this, it would give you the ability to go into those emergency situations and be able to recharge EVs. But also, you know, for the the off road stuff, um, you know, you get companies like um, Rivian, you know, launching their uh, off road uh, R one T and R one S pickup and SUV. Uh, we've got you know the Hummer. Uh, as EVs are now starting to be delivered. Uh, Jeep uh, Jeep has an interesting partnership with Electrify America uh, with the, the plug-in hybrid version of the, uh, the Wrangler. They're installing um, solar-powered charging stations at popular trailheads like uh, the Rubicon Trail and uh, Moab. Um, but, you know, the problem there, you know, with those kinds of locations is you typically don't have the really high capacity that you would want for fast charging uh, in terms of, you know, the, the electrical capacity available. There's just no, no big lines, no big power lines going into those locations. And that's where something like this fuel cell based system could, uh, could really be advantageous. 
And another big thing with it is um, the grid surge. Obviously, a smaller town that only is busy, you know, two or three holiday weekends in the summer. It might not make sense for them to totally upgrade their grid to meet the demands of the electric vehicles. So this um, solution is pretty effective in holding them over until there's a. It makes more sense for you know that town or locality to uh, further invest in their grid to meet the EV demands. Yeah, it's good to see that the GM, you know, is is finding some alternative uses for the fuel cell technology it has spent decades developing and investing billions of dollars into. Um, you know, I the first the first time I drove a GM fuel cell vehicle was back in 2007. Uh and uh you know, I've driven quite a few different fuel cell vehicles, but for you know, for for light duty passenger vehicles, you know, the the lack of uh, fueling infrastructure makes it really problematic to deploy that. That's why they really haven't caught on yet. Uh, yeah. But GM yeah, so, and Honda partnered yeah. to develop this latest generation fuel cell uh, for you know to make it uh, more affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, it was certainly an issue that came up in a couple articles I read about um, having that hydrogen transportation. And um, one of the solutions offered was just simply stocking up before the busy holiday weekend when you know everyone's coming to town. But that was definitely a worry, especially in the remote areas. If you run out of hydrogen, there's not really a great solution there yet. Yep. All right. Any other uh, comments on uh, what GM's doing with mobile salt, mobile fuel cell chargers? All right, let's move on. Uh, Saji, what have you got this week? <clears throat> Hi guys. Um, so yeah, I, I thought I'd like to talk about um, a couple of um, recent um, developments for uh, delivery bots. Uh, so firstly, starting with uh, Server Robotics. Um, so they currently have a um, a sidewalk delivery bot, and uh, which they've claimed that uh, has, is the first to achieve uh, level four autonomy uh, for a commercial delivery. So, um, so, yeah, so the company shared um, a video uh, recently uh, demonstrating their um, their level four delivery um, in in LA, I believe, from a couple of weeks ago. Um, I guess it, yeah, it, it was uh, interestingly, it was uh, obviously a momentous occasion for for Serve. Um, however, from watching the video, passersby on the on the sidewalk didn't seem to raise an eyebrow at it driving past. So they must be quite accustomed to them, or um, yeah, have no real interest um, outside of their smartphones. Um, so this, this new generation of, of their, uh, uh, bots are capable of completing, uh, commercial deliveries, especially for, 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 for food type deliveries or grocery deliveries without involving humans at all. Um, and, um, I guess from, from, a um, an automated drive-in perspective, um, you know, level four, uh, essentially says that, um, they can, they can operate completely um, autonomously um, in in the right environment um, and and and, lo- and uh, conditions um, so at the moment um, I think the, um, the, the the particular um, locations which have uh, level four capabilities are within the, the, the Los Angeles uh, area um, so um, yeah essentially it means there's there's no no longer a need for um, or they minimize the need for um, uh, remote operation of of the of the of the bots. Um, although in this particular video that they shared, um, they did demonstrate the fact that 
if um, um, an unfamiliar or unexpected circumstance um, arises, uh, the, uh, the the bot itself will turn on the video field to, to uh, video feed to the uh, teleoperator um, for them to to take control of the vehicle and uh, assess the situation. Um, most of the other companies who operate uh, delivery bots, um, they, they always have uh, remote operators um, just in case. And in the case of Kiwi bots, their remote operators were completely controlling the vehicles um, as they drove their delivery routes. Um, the company claims that the, the, you know, some of the main disadvantages of a remote operation is that, um, that actually it's repl- it relies on you know, solid cellular connection. Um, to be able to transmit that video feed, um, also with minimizing of the, the latency. Um, and of course, humans are still involved. So there is that potential for either human error or humans not being attentive at the time that um, assistance is, is required. Um, so, um, so, so, yeah, so, so the vehicles are, are you know, fully equipped with, with a range of um, uh, automated driving uh, sensors. Um, to enable its, its level of operation. Um, and um, it has you know, all of the typical safety features that, that larger vehicles may have, like emergency braking, uh, vehicle collision, um, and, and so on. So, um, yeah, so, so that's an interesting uh, development from, from Serve. And um, I think, um, you know, they've, they've probably moved a long way in, in the past year or so. Um, but, um, yeah, it seems that now they're ready for... Um, a more widespread commercial uh, deployment of their of their vehicles. Um, the other very quick um, related story is from Neuro. Um, so they have a, a robotic delivery vehicle, which which essentially means that they travel on actual roads uh, to make the deliveries. Um, their new vehicle is going to be called is actually just going to be called the Neuro. Um, that the previous generation was the R two. Um, so it's so a neuro. If, if you weren't uh, aren't familiar, they they were founded by some ex Waymo engineers, um, probably about five six years ago. Um, but this current generation, this new generation of of, of bots, um, is designed to have increased capacity uh, in terms of cargo carrying. Um, it has double the cargo carrying capacity of the of the R two. Um, it also features having. Um, um, temperature controlled compartments so for, for items such as food it can refrigerate or keep uh, keep the food uh, hot in transit um, it has uh, modular storage compartments um, to optimize the you know the type of cargo that can be carried um, and very interestingly um, this this delivery bot has um, an ex- has external um, airbags in the case of uh, a collision with a with a pedestrian uh, which is an interesting concept. Um, the, the R2 used to have um, a specially deformable windscreen um, in the case of, of, of such incident, uh, incidents. So, um, so yeah, so once again, um, an, another um, OEM who's showing um, progress in terms of trying to commercialize um, their, their delivery bots. Um, I know we had a, a relatively recent uh, discussion about uh, Neuro's partnership with 7-Eleven, um, but actually that wasn't using their, their, their delivery bots. It was just using uh, retrofitted um, Toyota Priuses. So, um, so yeah, they're looking to scale up and they've been partnering with BYD in the US uh, to help with production, um, I, I believe, um, in Nevada. And, um, 
yeah, they're, they're, they're actively looking, it seems to, to be making some developments in terms of commercializing their services. I think, um, you know, any of these companies making claims about being the first to commercialize their service, the claims, are, the claim, those claims themselves are a little dubious uh, because most of these companies, you know, have partnerships with with various uh, other companies to to do deliveries, and they're getting paid for it. So technically, mm. they're commercial services. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's interesting to see see the progress that's being made by uh, a lot of these companies, including Serve and Neuro. Uh, you know, during the the course of the pandemic, Neuro was doing a lot of deliveries with their uh, R two bots um, in uh, in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, particularly working uh, at uh, medical complexes and, and things like that, uh, doing either delivering meals or um, delivering medical samples around. So uh, you know, seeing interesting progress there. You know, other companies include you mentioned Kiwi. Yandex uh, has been operating here in, in the Ann Arbor area since March of 2021, um, and uh, over over the course of the latter part of last year, they expanded operations to a number of other college campuses. So, uh, there's quite quite a few companies doing some interesting things with automated delivery. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting to see that the the, the, the recent um, progress. Mm-hmm. And you know the, the advantages, you know, as you mentioned, you know the because these are smaller vehicles, the vehicles themselves are less expensive. Uh, there's less risk associated with them because they don't move very quickly. Uh, you know, if they're even if they do crash into something, the, the consequences are are less of a less of a problem. Um, you know, you're not you're not likely to uh, kill a pedestrian. You know, uh, with a with a bot that's you know going two or three miles an hour. Uh, down the sidewalk. <clears throat> yeah, that's true. I mean, in the, in the case of the Neuro, um, yeah, they do travel at a bit higher speeds. Um, yeah, probably typically that the kind of speeds that a bicycle may travel at is between 15 and 25 miles an hour. So, yeah, perhaps there there is probably a slighter, greater risk of, of an injury in the case of an accident. But, um, yeah, as he says, still, I, I, yeah, that, that risk is probably typically fairly, fairly low. My question was, you said they would have airbags to protect the pedestrian. But wait a second. If they're hitting the pedestrian and the airbag goes off, wouldn't it just throw the pedestrian even further? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> it, um, it, 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 the, the airbag, uh, um, is if you, uh, if you see a photo of it, it looks more like a side curtain airbag that you have in a vehicle. Uh, so it's it's not it's not a, a, a it doesn't extend out particularly far uh, from the vehicle like a like a typical steering wheel airbag would. Um, it's designed to provide cushioning on the front of the vehicle uh, to absorb some of the impact. Um, so uh, it, you know, it it doesn't really it's not really going to throw a pedestrian away, but rather just provide cushioning there uh, in the event of an impact. But wouldn't it have to fire before the impact? Um, yeah, have they, have, they haven't given the impact a whole, is imminent. Yeah, uh, I, I, they haven't given a whole lot of detail about exactly how that's going to work yet. Um, you know, I, I think I think you're right. I think it probably would fire you know just before impact. You know, if it's detecting uh, a, 
an imminent impact, it'll fire, you know, and then provide that cushioning as well as at the same time trying to break as, as hard as possible. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You'd hope they'd be fully deployed before, before, uh, before impact. But uh, interesting, I, I saw um, a concept a few years ago, I, I can't remember who it was, that we're, we're talking about some kind of passive uh, protection for, uh, for pedestrians. And, and they had a concept of a vehicle which was, it was, it was surrounded in some kind, of, it was permanently surrounded in some kind of cloud-like material, like cotton wool, like it had a lot of <laughs> uh, padding on the outside and, and was limited to relatively low, low speeds for, for urban transport. Um, to, yeah, to, to minimize fatalities and injuries in, in the case of uh, accidents. Yeah, there's been a lot of interesting uh, approaches tried with pedestrian protection on vehicles over the last 20 years, uh, particularly since they uh, started uh, in, in, um, launched a uh, pedestrian protection uh, safety standard in uh, Europe. And so it has caused the design of vehicles to be changed. They've changed the way hoods are structured. This is one of the reasons why um, you know, a lot of vehicles today tend to have a, a taller grill, taller hood, um, e- even you know, vehicles that aren't like tall riding SUVs or trucks. Uh, they have taller hoods than they used to in order to provide more clearance under the hood between the hood and the top of the engine. So that there's some room, if you do hit a pedestrian, it allows some room for the hood to deform and absorb some of that impact. Um, so there's less energy transmitted into the pedestrian. Um, if, if you have very little clearance between the top of the engine and the hood, then uh, that, um, you, then you know, all of that impact energy is going to be transmitted into the person. Um, you know, some some companies have even uh, used systems where the hood is actually, in the event of an impact, the hood is actually designed to pop up and away, uh, again, to provide that extra room for deformation. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, I'll get into uh, the final stories for this week. Um, I have uh, uh, some more EV news. Um, again, uh, with, with GM, yesterday, as we record this, uh, GM made a big announcement about uh, more investments in EV manufacturing uh, here in Michigan. Um, it's uh, $6.5 billion that they're investing uh, specifically into uh, retooling one of their assembly plants, so about $4 billion uh, for their assembly plant in Orion, Michigan, which is about uh, 30, 30 or 40 miles north of Detroit. Um, and that's the plant that currently builds the uh, Chevrolet Bolt and Bolt EUV. Uh, they're retooling that to produce um, full-size electric pickup trucks beginning in 2024. Uh, And then uh, in addition to that, uh, as part of their joint venture with LG, uh, there's another $2.5 billion, $2.6 billion going into uh, the third uh, lithium-ion cell manufacturing plant uh, as part of this joint venture. The first two um, are currently under construction in um, Lordstown, Ohio, and Spring Hill, Tennessee, this new one is going to be in Lansing, Michigan. Uh, so it'll be within about uh, 90 minutes drive of both the Orion assembly plant as well as uh, GM's Detroit Hamtramck assembly plant where they're building the Hummer and where they'll also be building um, the Cruise Origin and the Chevy Silverado and GMC Sierra EVs. Uh, so this is, this is a major investment 
um, with with this investment, GM is going to have um, by the by 2025 will have production capacity uh, for one million EVs in North America, uh, and um, six hundred thousand of that is targeted towards full size pickup trucks. Uh, just as a point of reference, um, GM in 2020 uh, sold, or 2021, sold about 850,000 full-size pickup trucks. So this, you know, clearly they, you know, they, they see the shift towards uh, electric for the full-size truck markets likely to proceed very, very quickly. Um, and, uh, what, you know, what that means is right now GM has four plants in North America that are building full-size pickup trucks two doing light duty trucks in, uh, Indiana and Mexico, uh, and then two others doing heavy duty trucks in Oshawa, Ontario, and, uh, in Flint, Michigan. And, you know, you're not, we're probably not going to see 600,000 incremental sales of pickup trucks, uh, just from the shift to electric, which means that's going to eat up a lot of those gas and diesel engine truck sales. Uh, and so some of those other plants are, you know, in the next uh, three to four years are likely to see a shift to producing other types of vehicles. Um, and it, uh, related to all of this, you know, with, with this, these massive investments being made by many manufacturers in new EV production and battery production uh, in the next three to five years, um, it's worth taking a look at where uh, EV sales are right now uh, in North America and particularly in the U.S. Um, in 2020, EVs accounted for um, let's see where is it here. EVs accounted for uh, just 1.8 percent of market share in the U.S. in 2020. So 1.8, they sold about 257, 258,000 EVs in the U.S. in 2020. In 2021, that number jumped to 487,500 uh, EVs, battery EVs, uh, and that uh, was 3.2% of overall vehicle sales. So we've almost doubled EV market share in the past year, and that number is likely to continue climbing at a pretty significant pace over the next five to 10 years. Um, I think our our latest um, forecast that we've published uh, for EV sales uh, for North America is projecting about, uh, I think about 28%, 27 or 28% uh, market share for EVs in North America. Uh, so uh, I think there's a, a pretty decent chance that we're going we're gonna to hit that target and maybe even exceed it uh, by the end of the decade. Um, the other thing that, you know, as, as part of this, uh, you know, still, you know, we're talking right now less than half a million EVs um, in the U.S. And still the vast majority of those to date in 2021 uh, were from Tesla. Uh, they accounted for um, about, let's see, 42, 50, about, uh, about 75% of EV sales uh, in the U.S. Uh, in, uh, in 2021. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, that, that's still, you know, significant majority of, of overall sales. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a number of other brands that are catching up quite, uh, quite rapidly. Um, we, uh, Ford, you know, launched their first, um, purpose built EV last year with the Mustang Mach-E. Um, that one grabbed 5.6% 
of the market in its first year when they had limited production capacity. They sold about 27,000 in the U.S. Um, and a similar number overseas. Um, and uh, they, you know, the other um, longest running, you know, the next um, best-selling EV after that was the, the Chevrolet Bolt, which unfortunately GM couldn't sell any of those after about September of last year as they were dealing with problems with uh, battery fires and recalling those to replace the batteries. Um, production of the Bolt uh, is expected to resume uh, next month um, at the Orient Assembly Plant. Uh, but there's a, a lot of new EVs that have come to market. Uh, we're up, we're now up to about uh, 25 EVs that are on sale in the U.S. Um, by the end of this year, that number is expected to be about 40. Um, so there's a lot of new product coming to market, and manufacturers are scrambling to find a way to build those. Um, and uh, they're, you know they're they're putting in a lot of production volume, so they're going to have to work hard to sell all those EVs, uh, especially since a lot of them are still at the higher end of the market. We're not going to be seeing really more affordable EVs until um, later in 2023 uh, when the new Chevy Equinox EV hits the market at a price of about $30,000. But most of of what is available right now starts at $40,000 and rapidly goes up from there. So um, the the EV market's growing, um, and uh, certainly the uh, the, the industry is moving quickly to, uh, to meet what they hope will be the demand for it in the next several years. I have a question for you on this one. Um, I've noticed that a lot of the EVs that are coming out are the Hummer truck, the, the Chevy Silverado truck, the Rivian truck, the, even the, the Mustang EV is not Mustang size. It's bigger. Uh, the Equinox, it's bigger. Is there a reason they're going for the larger vehicles? Is that for battery capacity or, or why are they going for that? Those those larger vehicles instead of the Chevy Volt type size? It, it's, it's a mix of a couple of things. It, you know, um, certainly they're going after the market segments that Americans are actually buying vehicles in. You know, the, 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 top, the top two market segments in the U.S. are full-size pickups and compact crossovers, uh, compact to midsize crossovers. So, um, you know, the, the uh, Ford F-Series has been the best-selling nameplate in the, in, uh, uh, the U.S. market for 40-some years. Um, they, you know, sold about 900,000 of them last year. Uh, GM sold uh, about the same number when you combine the Silverado and the uh, GMC Sierra. I think they actually sold slightly more than that. Um Stellantis sold about half a million Ram pickup trucks. So they're, they're going after, you know, the pickup truck market in particular um, because Americans buy a lot of them. And, um, you know, also, you know, they, because they're larger vehicles, they have the ability to put in, um, you know, more battery in there so they can get significant amount of range. Um, and um, also a lot of those, um, those pickup trucks are also sold to commercial fleets and commercial fleets or commercial operators, you know, whether that be uh, larger fleets, uh, you know, like, um, uh, you know, things like utilities, uh, you know, for their service trucks or, um, you know, smaller individual owner operators, you know, like landscapers, carpenters, electricians, um, or, you know, municipal, um, you know, parks, parks departments, things like that. 
they have a huge interest in uh, electric trucks because for commercial operators, they tend to accumulate a lot of miles on them. Um, and going electric, uh, the operating costs for those kinds of users tend to be a lot higher uh, or a lot, a lot bigger proportion of their total costs. Uh, you know, where, you know, for average consumers that drive 12 to 15,000 miles a year, um, the operating costs aren't as big a factor for them. Um, you know, the, the amount of fuel they use, the, the service and maintenance uh, is less of their, a smaller percentage of the total uh, cost of ownership. But for commercial operators, it's the opposite. Uh, they do tend to op, you know, operate a lot, uh, a lot more miles annually. And so they're interested in operating costs. And in most cases, those users are also um, far, you know, they're, they're less likely to take those vehicles for road trips. Uh, you know, they operate mostly in, in the local area. Uh, and so, you know, they see the opportunity to go electric, you know, could fit very well with their use case. Uh, then the other part of that, you know, the, the, the change that we've seen in the, the U.S. market in the past uh, decade is a shift. You know, if you go back, you know, eight, 10 years, the best selling, aside from pickup trucks, the best selling vehicles in the U.S. market were midsize sedans, Toyota Camry, Honda Accord, Ford Fusion, Nissan Altima. Um, sales of those vehicles has dropped off dramatically in the last six or seven years and shifted much more towards, um, towards uh, compact to midsize crossovers. So where the Camry used to be the best-selling non-pickup truck, it's now the Toyota RAV4 and the Honda CRV and the Chevy Equinox and the Ford Focus. So the, the auto industry is looking at, okay, if, if we're going to sell a lot of electric vehicles, we should probably put electric propulsion into the vehicle, the kinds of vehicles people actually want to buy. Um, and so that's why you're seeing, um, Toyota launch their first EV this year, this spring with the new BZ4X, the Subaru Solterra, which is a, the same vehicle. Um, you've got the, the Mach-E, you know, which is in a similar size class, uh, as a crossover, um, the, the Equinox, uh, coming next year, uh, and, uh, the VW ID4 is another example in that same segment. Uh, those are, those are the types of vehicle form factors that American consumers are buying. So that's why we're seeing them getting going electric first. Makes sense. Okay. Thank you. All right. That's good. Uh, then uh, we will talk to you all in two weeks. Have a, have a good time. Stay safe out there. Sounds good. Have a good one. Yeah. Thank you all. Thank you.